Welcome back, or if you are new here, welcome to the Training Edge. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, we kept it kind of low key. I uh, did a turkey trot where I decided to design a half marathon in the foothills of the mountains, uh, right, I mean, fairly right after a snowstorm. So there's plenty of snow and ice, um, and we just had a lot of uh, scrambling around while we were doing our half marathon. So, um, But my wife and I did it, and we got it done, and um, from there it was just enjoying uh, the Zoom calls with the family. So um, different Thanksgiving for sure, but still a nice day and, and just a nice time to uh, focus on what good we have in our lives. So I hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving and uh, was able to do the same. All right, now this this week we're doing something a little different that I'm sharing with you an episode of the Fast Cat podcast that I was a part of with head coach Frank Overton, my boss. Um, so he asked me to be to join him on the podcast and to chat with him about a coaching topic that I think is super important, and that's specificity training. And in particular, if you should be doing specificity training year-round. Um, so I'm a huge believer in this, and we get pretty far into this topic during this chat. So I think that in general, you guys will be able to pull some good examples from this and be able to apply it to your own training. So enjoy, everyone, and thanks again for tuning in. If you enjoy this content, leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts, and please spread the word. All right. Thanks, everyone. Enjoy my chat with Frank. Greetings, Fast Cats. Today, it is my pleasure to have Coach Isaiah in the house. How are you, Isaiah? I am doing well. I'm doing well. It's nice here today in Boulder. Um, been coaching a lot of cyclocross. I've been coaching some juniors through cyclocross every week, which has gotten me out in the dark and in the cold, um, which is like a, you just kind of forget that that actually can be fun. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a new a new thing for me again, which has been super cool to, and they just have such joy to what they do, which is, and they're amazingly talented. So that also helps, but yeah, it's been fun. Oh, I love it. I follow them on Instagram and they're always posting pictures of them, like riding at night, climbing on hay bales and (laughs) stuff like that. They make it interesting and yeah, there's a lot of skill practice to it that you can make into a lot of cool games. Um, and yeah, last night we were playing soccer with a light up, a soccer ball in a field um and you can't put your foot down so that's that always yeah i mean they're they're oh, very talented it's cool it's fun was that like bike polo kind of yeah except for um we oh you use your foot yeah well you know so you you have to it's it's very similar to bike polo um we just have like a little um you have to get a certain amount of touches per team so you have to basically make enough passes and oh. then hit it through a certain goal or something like that or um and then just not nobody on the team can put their foot down in order to score so it's yeah we just make it more and more hard and um there's all sorts of different things you can do with it like number of touches um with one player and it, yeah it's just it gets it gets pretty intense fun <laughs> yeah yeah and um for the listeners one of the things we're going to talk about uh, is going to coincide with uh, a mantra of uh, cyclocross practice or Boulder Junior cyclocross practice, but it's never canceled. And um, that is because they also subscribe to the specificity of training. And it's not if you're going to do a cyclocross race in 10 degrees, muddy, wet, it's just when. And you want to practice how you're going to play. So if you want to be prepared for that mucky, cold, nasty cyclocross race, you 
you shouldn't cancel cyclocross practice. Yep. It makes you get creative on Mm -hmm. how do I keep warm when it's 30 degrees and snowing Mm -hmm. um, or 20 degrees and snowing and it's dark. How do I keep myself moving without making myself too tired, but then keeping myself warm. So you just got to make things up and keep it fun. And that, that helps a ton. That's awesome. Well, what are we talking about today? So today we are going to be discussing a subject that I personally love, um, which is advising athletes to train um, specificity or specifically for their goal events and races. Oh, I, I love this topic, and uh, I, I believe in the same thing too. It, it makes up a, um, a pretty big theme here in the, in the podcast. So, looking forward to, to diving into that with you. Um, first, let's do some announcements, everyone. It's uh, it's November, and it already seems like it's sign-up season again, uh, just like last year for these various gravel races. Um, already, I'm working with some athletes to help them choose which races to try to sign up for because the, I mean, the, these races sell out, so it's like you have to decide now, whereas in previous years with road racing, it's like, okay, let's iron this out like late, late winter. Um, but there's two new races in particular that have caught my eye, both of which are in August, which, uh, pray to gosh that COVID will be under control by then. Um, number one is the last best ride. It's a gravel race in Montana, August 22nd. And Isaiah, I'm not sure if you've watched the TV show Yellowstone, but, um, we binged watched that and I highly recommend it. Um, I think there was two seasons and they're, they're working on a third one. But it's great. It's uh, set in Montana. Uh, It's about ranching and um, being a cowboy and riding horses. It'll make you, you know, want to go up to Montana and be a cowboy and ride horses and then, you know, maybe ride your gravel bike up there. Yeah, (laughs) I want to hit that race up, too. That one sounds amazing. It's put on by uh, two of my friends, um, Jess and... uh, her uh, lovely boyfriend. So that's like, I think it's a great race and it looks amazing as far as like the mm-hmm. views and just the different terrains. And it, I've heard it has some pretty decent climbing in it. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, like I think that'll be really cool. Yeah. And I had to Google where Whitefish is, but it's way up there. Um, yeah, it is. I mean, you're just south of the Canadian border. So um, I always have enjoyed traveling to different parts of the country and the world for, for bike races and, you know, this definitely checks the box for that. Nice. Very nice. The second one that um, has come on my radar, you may have seen it on Bella News, it's the Wasatch All Road 100. It's in Utah, 12K feet of climbing. It's August 28th, $10,000 prize person. It's put on by former pro Jeff Lauder. And this is kind of, it reminds me a little bit of the Crusher and the Tusher, a um, little bit longer, a little bit more climbing. And, um, that's August 28th. And so here's where it gets complicated because, um, the second biggest gravel race in, in the country behind the, what's now called the unbound gravel, the former dirty Kansas is the steamboat gravel. And that's August 15th. And so you got August 15th steamboat. Uh, then you have the last best ride Montana the following weekend. Then you have the Wasatch all road, the, the following weekend on the 28th. And then that may even conflict with Rebecca's private Idaho, or maybe that is the following weekend. So you have like four major gravel races all in a row. And while Isaiah could probably pull that off because he's a young buck, 
I cannot because I did Steamboat last year and I was wrecked for a good two weeks afterwards. It's just that much of an enormous physical task. And so it would make a hell of a summertime road trip, uh, but physically, I'm not sure if I could pull that off. So I think you, you just want to pick and choose and like pick one or pick two, but um, maybe not pick all three in a row unless you're... Um, well, you know, unless you're like at a high level and, you know, can handle that from a, from a master's road cycling, you know, it's not like you're doing three or four or five road races in a row, which we used to do. I mean, we used to do racing, you know, March through August, but these gravel races are difficult. They leave a mark. There's, uh, there's some recovery to be done afterwards, even for, you know, uh, the elite of the elite. So um, yeah, it's an interesting conundrum, but I thought everyone would just enjoy um, hearing about those because I, for one, am looking forward to getting back to some events and some bike rides. How about you, Isaiah? Yes, I'm very much itching, but hopefully it's sooner <laughs> rather than later. That's right. I, I, gosh, I'm just reading the news and everything. I really think that uh, next summer is uh, worth holding out hope for. Mm-hmm. Fingers crossed. Um, our review of the week comes to us from Ethan Salter, and uh, he was on the 10-week weightlifting for cycling training plan, and he says, this is my second time running this program, and I've found benefits both in mental, riding, power, and then an overall increase in FTP. As an older rider and racer, the lifting is really important to maintain power, and the idea of recovery as well as proper technique is really important for this program. Learning to lift and stretch and recover all the while working and living a life is tricky balance at times, but well worth it when it comes to the racing. This will be a program I return to as a base each year. And thank you, Ethan. And dare I say you've come to understand the benefit of our podcast today, topic today, which is specificity, as in, in what you cite, learning to stretch and recover. And as I say that, Isaiah, have we let the cat out of the bag of what the topic is? Uh, I mean, we sort of mentioned it, yeah. <laughs> Only okay. slightly. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm having a, a, a mental lapse here. I am uh, I am getting older, you guys, so um, I do forget things. Um, but uh, as we get through, before we get into it, I just want to say, um, head, uh, head over to iTunes, leave us a review about what you like and don't like. Um, there, We got a bad review recently. And it breaks my heart. Uh, it. Uh, we, I'm sorry that we didn't meet um, this reviewer's uh, expectations. He did. It was kind of a backhanded compliment with a um, thing. But I, you know, one of the purposes of this podcast is to educate and share. And then what we want to do, if you are on board with that, is to provide you the resources to actually go out and do. And thus is our training plans, obviously our coaching services. And if you want to do, you know, if you get into a training plan, we provide the 25 podcast for 25% off your plan. And furthermore, if you're not sure what plan to start with, that's why we created a uh, what we call our athlete forum, forum.fastcatcoaching.com. You can join our endurance community. It's free. And you can ask your training questions. And myself and Isaiah and all the Fast Cat coaches will do our best to answer your question and help you ride faster. And so 
just, yeah, don't forget, head over to iTunes, uh, leave us tons of reviews, and let's bury that, that negative review we got over there. Nice. Isaiah, Isaiah also has a podcast, the Training Edge podcast. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Do you read all the reviews? I do. Yeah. Um, slowly, uh, you know, luckily I've been, uh, haven't received a negative review yet, but I'm sure it'll come at some point. People uh, are opinionated out there. But, um, yeah, I guess you just got to stay um, positive and provide uh, good information and hope that that's received well. Yes. Yeah. I think uh, everyone reads all their reviews, unless you're like Joe Rogan and you're so big time, you don't have time to read yeah. your reviews. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah. We read everything. I, I've said it before. It's what keeps us going. It, what, it's what motivates us. And if, uh, if, if, you, if, if, I mean, if you're able to leave a constructor review of something we can do better, we're all ears. All right. Enough of that. Uh, Isaiah. As we're talking about specificity, let's begin by defining what exactly we mean when we say specifically train. Mm -hmm. So the particular definition of specificity is specific or particular. So um, it's the act, basically, of training um, that is specific or targeted to the demands that an athlete might receive Um basically during their race or their primary goal. So it's what they need to overcome um, and then training to be able to do so. Um, and then we refer to specificity in several ways, most specific in terms of power skills, terrain, um, equipment, nutrition, and uh, last but not least, of course, duration. So an example um, that our athletes will know from this podcast is switching from base to race. Um, so when you switch from base to race, you are introducing intervals that are preparing you for the demands of your race and your goal. Awesome. Awesome. And then that brings us to our topic today. Should athletes be doing specificity training year round? So my answer, short answer is yes. Um, but we have to think about this in moderation and it needs to be planned out to match your training cycle and your season. Um, and what I mean by that is in, like an example would be you can't always be doing race specific VO2 efforts in your off season. But in contrast, you can be working on your core, um, like if you're a mountain biker, for example, or if you're a time trialist. Um, so that's the timing is everything, um, which includes specificity as well. So how you train specifically um, in the weight room differs from how you would train specifically during your interval phase, something like that, um, if that makes sense. Mm hmm. Um, so yeah, today, like, honestly, I wanted to get into, uh, we'll be talking about the specific training you want to focus on during each one of our phases, which is, uh, weightlifting base, sweet spot training, um, interval training. Uh, we also call this kind of the race specific phase, meaning performing intervals specific to power demands of the race, which I just kind of like what I've just mentioned. Um, and then our in season phase. So we're kind of breaking it up into four different, um, things and then, uh, to give some examples, just as we'll dive into, um, and we'll get into more of this in a bit, but um, VO2s, if the power demands your race requiring you to do like three to six minute climb efforts, that kind of thing. Nutrition, how to train your gut, um, time of day training, meaning whether or not you should be like, do you have a race in the morning or the evening? Uh, base training, basically how much sweet spot you should be doing. Uh, not as, you know, it's not quite the same if you're a crit racer versus if you're doing a ultra event, like a marathon mountain bike race or a Fondo or a gravel race, 
uh, protecting, uh, sorry, practicing your time trials, time trial position. So being able to kind of hold that very arrow steady position and how to uh, get into that. And should you be doing that all the time or not? Um, and then skills practice. So like if you're a mountain biker, um, actually, if you're just any cyclist, really what kind of skills you should be diving into. So whether or not that's drafting, pack positioning, maneuvering, um, energy saving, you know, really all of the above. So yeah, those are the, the big ones. We got a lot. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. I love it. Um, we'll probably come up with some more as we get into it. Um, well, uh, let's start with the off season, um, or the on season as we like to call it. Um, because what Isaiah is talking about, you all, is you want to always train specifically for, you know, what type of event you're training for. And I think one of the, you know, the first questions we ask any athlete is, what are you training for? And that automatically, the answer gets us to formulate, well, okay, if you're a cyclocrosser or a criterium racer, are the way that we, you know, design training programs and recommend approaches to training is going to be different than say, if you're a gravel racer or a mountain biker, for, for example. And so one of the ways to begin to uh, organize uh, everything for you is in these, these four phases. And since we're in the off season or in the on season and apologies to our uh, Southern Hemisphere listeners out there who um, I think the Australians are in getting ready to well they're probably like at the beginning of their road racing season so yeah, yeah. Um, when we talk about uh, the interval phases just you that's what you want to key in on right now but for the purposes of November in North America and the Northern Hemisphere we're in the off season on season and we're most athletes are uh in the weight room um or doing that the at home program and so Isaiah what uh what can athletes do during this time to add specificity to their races you know on top of you know your basic squats vipers leg presses yeah so I think on all of these, a good place that you need to start is asking, of course, what your goals are and what your A races are. Um, and that could be an event. It could be a race, whatever it might be. Then dive into what the demands of that event will be. And really, like, go all in on this. Go take the whole picture. Go beyond just like, all right, what kind of intervals do I need to do? Really dive deep and think about, you know, anything from you know, weather at the race, it might be hot or it might be cold, um, what you'll be eating or even what position you'll have to hold for hours on end. And then assign that from there to the phases that we kind of just talked about. Um, so work on your gut training during base and, and interval training. Um, and then especially for, you know, those longer simulation rides and then work on heat acclimatization during, um, simulation rides as well, but then also kind of like ease into that over time. Um, and then, so like an example of that would be, um, if you are living in Boulder and it's cold, but then you're training for something that's in a hot period, um, being able to do some sort of heat climatization. Um, and we can get into that in a little later. Um, but a good one for, sorry, stepping back over his strength program, a good one there is using exercises you're doing and then applying them to a position, um, that's conducive to the position you'll be on the bike. So what I mean by that is an example would be kind of a box jump. So if you're doing a plyo circuit and you're doing a box jump, start from a stance that is the distance of your pedals. 
So instead of doing a pretty wide squat and jump, you're actually kind of narrowing your stance a little bit to simulate that position um, and then exploding from there. And that's going to help transfer that power onto the pedals a little bit easier. Um, or, you know, if you're a time trialist, maybe when, if you're doing planks where you're doing core work, change your position of your plank. So normally you just kind of think, all right, I'm going to have my arms in a V position and I'm just going to, you know, have my shoulders be the way they are. And I know I'm supposed to keep a flat back, but why don't you instead think about how you're turtling? So how you're scrunching up your shoulders and try that during your plank. And that'll actually help you hold that in a TT position um, a little bit easier once you start implementing that on the bike. Um, so then the, another example is the Nino routine we have on our plans. Um, this is a great example of specificity training because, I mean, like he obviously does it for uh, to implement that in on a World Cup circuit level. So mountain biking um, and this provides like full body movement, stabilized work, um, and many other great things. And that just uh, is, I think, applicable for multiple athletes. Uh, but you have to, again, kind of say, like, all right, what are the demands of my race? And, you know, most off-road r- people, athletes, will be able to use that really, really well. Um, so, yeah, it's like the yoga poses um, that are single-legged. Like, we might think, oh, well, this is just balance drills. But you also kind of think about, like, how can that work within maybe handling on a mountain bike or on, you know, on a cross bike or whatever it might be? Um, like, are you able to use that? drill to be able to basically like help push your bike away from your body and turns stuff like that um and then another also example is on the plyo side um to be able to help transfer that power kind of what i was mentioning with box jumps but just doing a circuit routine so that you're helping transfer sprint power or that pop that you need um and that's you know again good one for roadies and cross racers and sprinters like so yeah that's all i know i'm just throwing out a lot of examples but that's it's a it's a good one to really grab and use a lot of different things during the strength program for sure absolutely and you know as you were saying all that i was thinking of the foundation routine dr Mm, eric goodman's if you um have ever done an event that your back hurts at the end uh really double down on your foundation work um in the, in the off season because you have more time. And so it's for everyone that's new to this, it's the, the 12 minute Dr. Eric Goodman foundations. We put it in, um, every Monday and Friday, but if you're in the gym, um, it's only 12 minutes. I mean, while you're waiting for your coffee to brew in the morning, get down into your founders pose and, um, you know, kind of, you know, take yourself through, through that. Um, the famous quote at the end of the video is do this every day, no back pain ever. And And it's true. And so, whether you're a mountain biker, gravel racer, uh, time trialist, um, that's why we put it in there. It can help just about almost every discipline, uh, there is in the off season. Yeah. I've had a lot of athletes in the off season right now. That's when they're kind of starting to pick that up. And really uh, they, we should all do a better job doing that year round because it does kind of hold on to that strength. But it basically what it does is it, uh, cyclists notoriously have really tight hamstrings and then we don't have good activation on our glutes because of that so it does a combination of those where it stretches your hamstrings wakes up your glutes and then it will allow you to put pressure on your back so that you're strengthening your back over time rather than a huge load like you would in on a five-hour mountain bike ride that you're doing out of the blue so it's all of that kind of combining um and they're just yeah i mean i actually had an athlete um who has 
a little bit weak shoulders that it was kind of strengthening out his shoulders as well because there's one pose at the end where that focuses on mm-hmm. but yeah it's a great routine for sure and you know if this also will tie into what we'll talk about uh in maybe about 10 or 20 minutes but the simulation rides it, the reason why you do simulation rides is to flush out a lot of things that are going to happen in a race, one of which being back pain. You know, I don't really have back pain when I do three and four hour rides, but when I do a six and seven hour, like, you know, gravel race, yeah, my back talks back to me. And so that's just one reason why you do the, do the simulation rides is, um, you flush out that weakness and then you address it, uh, like now with something like foundations. Um, any other examples of, uh, you know, just training with specificity during the, uh, the, the weights, I guess a big one would be core that mm, often gets yeah. forgotten. Um, and I think I hear it all the time within athletes that are, uh, trying to improve core in the off season. And then the moment they kind of like transfer that time over to the bike, they kind of forget and it gets forgotten. And then by the end of the year, they're like, man, my core is just horrible again. Um, so I guess even if it's just something like super simple that takes you two minutes, like maybe just a really fast circuit core work that just allows you to crank it out and get it done and kind of hold on to a stable core. Um, cause cyclists in the same way notoriously are awful at, um, posture and we slump over our bike all day. So like, this is a good time to really pull into that. And then it's amazing how many races, um, you would be in a lot better of a place if you had a core to manipulate, um, during that time rather than just relying on your legs. Amen. Yeah. One other thing I thought of is your, uh, um, to begin to incorporate Viper, uh, movements. Yeah. And, um, we have this really good, um, like demonstration, uh, video on our website. It's basically a split squat, a Viper lunge, and then it's a lateral side lunge and then a over the shoulder back lunge. And, it, it really just helps you address uh, core stability, getting more glute activation. And the reason why I thought of it is because I was looking at the gram this morning, Isaiah, and Kate Courtney's swinging a Viper too. Nice. So yeah, nice. she's even gotten on, on board with that um, <laughs> as a mountain biker. Uh, cool. Okay. So let's see. Let's move on. So that's, that's your weight weight training your your off season then what comes next is your base training this would be for the north american athlete um like december through march april ish or maybe january through through may if you're getting a later start and um isaiah what can what are some examples of in your book of getting specific during the the base phase when they're doing the sweet spot yeah so this is um another time where I think athletes get a little too focused on, oh, hey, I need to be like just putting in big miles, but also, you know, think big picture, like think outside the box a little bit. So kind of what I was talking about before. Um, So this is a great time to build as you progress to things. So it's that concept again of, all right, maybe you should do a little bit of back work so that um, you can build to being stronger and stronger. And that's the same within our weight programs. But the concept is a good example would be gut training. So, out of the gate, you can't immediately go do a five hour ride. Um, and then eating every 30 minutes and be able to consume 60 plus grams of carbs an hour. It's just, you're going to have a lot of issues. You're going to have possible gut distress during the ride itself. 
you're going to have probably issues after the ride where you might feel sick or might have some bathroom issues. Um, so it's important to kind of build through that slowly. So, you know, when you're out starting your base training and you're only doing an hour to two hour of rides with some efforts and they're kind of low key, dial it in, really focus on, you know, maybe making sure you have set times where you take a drink or every 30 minutes on the dime, you're eating something. Um, and that'll allow you to start at, um, where I see a lot of athletes are only consuming maybe 20 or 10 grams an hour. Then I'm slowly building them up like, all right, next doing 25, then 30, then so on. Um, and then by the time you're at your a race where you need to be consuming, um, for the, you know, top level athletes, they need to be really close to that 80 gram marker. Um, they'll be there and they'll be ready to do it. Um, so then, yeah, so that's the, the food side. Um, another really big one is it's difficult during the winter because it's cold and it's dark, but you need to be thinking about when your races are going to be starting when they come around. And what I see athletes do is maybe a month or a couple of weeks before their race, they're already, they're all like all of a sudden rushing to get their race or start their ride at 7am. Um, because their race starts at 7am. But maybe ease into that. Maybe say like, all right, if you normally start your ride at 2 p.m. and you're all of a sudden trying to do it at 7, maybe then go to noon, then maybe go to 8. And then you can test yourself that way and kind of get your gut in check and your um, just mental clock ability to do that. And then your routine, too, because then it's like, all right, well, you got to give yourself time to eat and stuff like that. Um, and then another cool one that I love to start during that base entry phase. Um, and this is just an example. So this can also be applied to, you know, mountain bikers and other stuff like that. But, um, TTers, I have them do a TT build where it's not what you might think of as doing high intensity intervals to where you're doing threshold and stuff like that. It's just getting used to holding the time trial position. So it'll be, I'll have them do maybe like five minutes of tempo and that's where they start at. Maybe they do three by five and then I'm having them do cadence alterations, but they're in the sticks for that five minutes. And that is a huge deal because then you can build from five minutes up to, you know, maybe if they're a 40 K athlete, then an hour. Um, and you can't immediately go to a time trial and then only spend a month trying to build to being able to hold that position. There's no way you're going to need to come out of that position during the event and, or you might be able to hold it, but then you're not focused on your effort. So it's better to take your time and build to that. And it doesn't always need to be done in a race style effort. It can be done at a lower intensity and then build to it. So yeah, that's a, that's a really good one to do mm -hmm. and a great example. Um, we just had that question on the Q and a pod two weeks ago, um, that an athlete was asking, um, about turtling and mm -hmm. it's it, like Isaiah says, like it takes practice and, and just like you would build up like how much sweet spot you can do, you, you need to build up five minutes, work up to 10 minutes of being able to sustain and hold your position down in that, that turtle position. Cause it, it's not natural and it takes practice. Mm -hmm. That's uh yeah. You know what? Another thing is, um, that as I was listening to you, Isaiah, that, um, that was talking about like super specificity, like 7am, a number of years ago, um, there was a, a New Zealand mountain bike athlete named Kashi Lukes, and he was training for the Olympics here in Boulder in the summer. And the 2000 Olympics was in Greece. 
uh, at a different time zone. And he figured out that his mountain bike race was going to start at uh, like 2 a.m. Boulder time. Uh. But that was like 9 a.m. Greek time or something like that. So Kashi was going out and doing every single one of his workouts at 2 a.m. And he was on Greece or Greek time, the time zone, the way he slept and, um, um, you know, be, stayed awake so that when he flew over there, leaving altitude, he wouldn't be dealing with jet lag Man, and, uh, next level. <laughs> totally next level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that is a great example. I mean, that's Olympic specificity right there. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely heard of, uh, other pros. I did it a little bit when I went to Europe and raced, but I honestly didn't do that much of it. But I know a lot of top level cross athletes when they go to Europe will, at least start transitioning their sleep schedule. I've never mm-hmm. heard of an athlete going out and cranking out a hard session at 2 a.m., but that's, that is that is amazing. I, I mean, he was on great time the whole summer from yeah, what I heard. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Incredible. <laughs> Sorry uh, to interrupt. No, <laughs> no, all good. I mean, that's, that's a good segue because, I mean, mountain biking. Um, so, you know, if you – I have a decent amount of Leadville athletes, and if they – a big thing that we work on is holding – a position again but this time on your bike so if you can't be spending all of your time on a road bike um, if you're doing a hundred mile mountain bike race so make sure you spend the time on the machine that you're going to be on so prep your body for that um, and it might seem simple but you know even racing with a hydration pack spend time with it on your back loaded and uh, really prep yourself for that because it makes a big impact and it can be super distracting if you're out on a big race and you're, uh, not used to it. Yeah. Yeah. Using that chase camelback vest with all the pockets and the, you know, things on the chest, it took a while to get used to. And that's not something you want to put on on race day and just mm-hmm. expect to use seamlessly. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yep. Um, and yeah, that's like spending, the time on the mountain bike is, is relative to what your goals are. So, you know, if you're doing a hundred mile event, uh, you really, you know, you should be prepping to close to that. You don't need to be going out and doing a nine hour ride necessarily, but on simulations, like make sure that you're at least getting, you know, upwards of six. Cause that's something that will be truly testing, um, your, uh, just stance on the bike. So that's important to have in, but that doesn't mean that you need to be only riding the mountain bike. Like you can get, mix that up between, riding the road and or riding the road on your mountain bike. Um, but just like to really try and, uh, that big picture again, trying to decipher what the true demands of the race are and then applying it to your training, um, more than just the intervals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good one. I see a lot of athletes riding around town on their mountain bikes on the road and you kind of know, Hey, that's a Leadville athlete. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then a, so we mentioned this before, but we can dive a little bit more into it, but the concept of, and I work with, especially with winter, um, and then lately actually athletes that are in a really warm climate going to a cold climate. So heat acclimatization, cold climatization, and then altitude acclimatization, uh, the base phase is a great period to be introducing that. And then again, building to it so that it's not just a humongous shock, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's important to give yourself time. Yeah. And, and there's a couple of cyclocross examples. Um, like if it's, 
like going to be really cold, um, you need to work out in the cold and, um, you know, be able to stand around in the cold and, 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 and all that. And not necessarily just from like how your body's going to tolerate that, but you need to like figure out what to wear and what not to wear. Yeah. That's a big thing in cyclocross. And like, I remember, um, we did a race and it was pouring rain and I thought I'm, I'm all set. I got all the gear. I'm going to nail this, but guess what I did? I warmed up, uh, underneath like the hatchback of my car, Isaiah, nice. and I was getting a little bit wet. And so I put on my like ski parka over top of me and what happened, I sweated like through my base layer and everything. <laughs> I sweated way too much. And so when it came time to race, I was completely soaked from the inside Oof. and I went to the start line. Uh, completely wet and freezing cold. Whereas, you know, had I practiced warming up in the the rain, or, and I would have, you know, done known to like take off everything. You basically you take off everything and change into dry clothes before you go to the start. Yep. It's just stuff like that. But like, I think is this the part where we're going to talk about going down to the Gila? Um, oh, we can dive into it now. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That's the other, that's the heat acclimatization example. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that, that's both, uh, like altitude and heat. So it's like a double whammy. Um, so that's when it's important to like, really, I mean, there's the whole sauna protocol that that's a, that's a big one to dive into, um, maybe on a later date. Uh, but that's, yeah. And then, so for heat, you want to, at least make sure that you are going out and uh, slowly getting your body used to different heat that that might be. So that could be going and doing a training camp in the heat. Um, and that could be in altitude as well. Um, if, if accessible and both of that will be allow you to at least mentally prep for it. So know how to handle it. Maybe you need to change your fueling um, or altitude where, how will this affect my sensations and how deep can I really go? Um, and then there's all the physiological um, steps as well. But that's, that is a huge thing to think about and plan out because you can't be doing that. Um, I see this all the time with Gila because it's the weather finally starts to shift and Silver City is just high enough that it does get cold. So there is that period before the race where it becomes warm. So athletes will go there uh, you know, three or two weeks right before the race, um, where they're still in a decent enough of a training phase. And then they are adding in acclimatization to heat and altitude at the same time. And then by the time they start the race, they're already fatigued. So you need to plan out when to make those, uh, focuses introduced and progression introduced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you like live, in the north where it's cold and then you travel to a race that's in the south where it's going to be hot it's like that's going to be a rude awakening i mean going down to the gila from boulder it felt like you were racing in an oven and yeah i mean so do you have athletes uh train in the sauna and then if athletes don't have a sauna like what can you do to um maybe meet that Mm -hmm. temperature demand i do um this is you know another example of a little bit of extra credit training for sure. Um, you know, you have to kind of balance your matches a bit and time. Uh, but for my elite guys, a hundred percent. Um, so they are doing a sauna protocol. It can be, you know, anywhere from, uh, 20, 30 minutes or more. And that's another one that you want to build on, um, maybe twice or three times a week and doing that post training. Um, so you're going to get 
more advances physiologically from doing that basically like right after a session. Um, and that's another one that you kind of want to build up in time. Um, so and they're like, they're like taking the trainer into the sauna and doing I, a workout. I don't have them doing a workout in the sauna. That's oh, a, okay. that's okay. where it's kind of like, for me, at least the line of we need to accomplish the workout mm-hmm. and then we can try and focus on the heat acclimatization. Okay. Um, so you get in the sauna after yep, the workout. Yep. Gotcha. So gotcha, basically gotcha. when they're already kind of hot and warm, mm-hmm. then getting straight into the sauna and, and, um, continuing that phase and having that focused and it's also i think there's been quite a few studies that have actually said like don't drink when you're in the sauna as well because that is replenishing what you're trying to work the body from basically using so um yeah so there's a different protocols within that but then if you don't have a sauna accessible um there's the classic uh either outside if you're in a warm climate or inside on the trainer um, wearing, it's kind of like the old wrestling <laughs> protocol of wearing a ton of clothes, like putting sweatpants yeah. on, maybe wearing mm-hmm. a rain jacket. Um, mm-hmm. when you're inside on the trainer, it's miserable and don't be trying to do your efforts while doing it. Uh, just do, you know, this can just be simple, like zone one recovery spin with a jacket on, um, mm-hmm. without a fan on in, you know, 70 degree house temperature. And that's going to be enough to kind of produce that, um, adaptation that you need to take place. A little more miserable than a sauna, but it works. <laughs> cool. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so yeah. Sorry to interrupt on that. No, no, no. Um, yeah. That's a, that's a, there's plenty of cool studies out there to read on, on, on protocols for those. So I, I love that stuff. But yeah, it is, it does uh, take having that availability and time to do so. Um, uh, so. Okay. So yeah. The, and then the other example that I had for um, during that base phase is cadence work. So taking and thinking about what the torque demands or cadence demands will be from your race. So if you have a lot of, uh, so basically like what kind of terrain there is. So if you have a lot of steep climbs in the race or steep, loose, like gravel, um, you know, be sure to incorporate that into your training, like go out and do some pretty good climbing at the right gradient, um, and make sure to get that sim- stimulation and, uh, simulation. Um, so yeah, that's like a huge one. Um, and then same with, if you need high leg speed, um, for road racing, you need to simulate that you need to work under gear work. So to be able to kind of make that adaptation, to be able to produce power at hundred RPM. Um, it's, it's that kind of stuff. That's really important. That's why all the pros do the, um, motor work. So, you know, behind a scooter. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if you're in, uh, yeah, I'm Frank, I'm curious if you have any examples, if like, if you live in Florida, what to do mm-hmm. with this? Cause I had an athlete, um, the other day ask it like, Oh, I don't have any Hills. I just have bridges. So what do I right. do? Um, so I'm curious if you have <laughs> an example. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, it's just starting with the, the group rides, like this is why group rides are such good training is because you are going to get in that, that high cadence work just from the speed of riding in the Peloton. And so that, that, that serves the, the group ride thing. But if you live in Florida, I mean, these days it's very common, you know, from athletes that live in all, all, all over the world to travel to a race that has climbing. So whether that's uh, like an oat route in, in Europe or some crazy Fondo, you know, triple bypass in Colorado is a very popular one. And so for the athlete in Florida, it's like, you know, it's pancake flat. How, how do you do that? And how do you mimic or get to uh, train on that terrain to, to, you know, introduce those pedaling torque forces um, that you're going to face on the race day? 
Um, it, obviously, you know, it's tough to do in Florida. So the best way is like, okay, maybe drive up to Georgia, um, just north and, you know, where they have like the gaps and there's, you know, there's some good climbing there. So you could train on that train, maybe make like a, a long weekend training camp out of it. Um, the other way is, you know, travel to a training camp. You could, you know, if you're really into it, you could travel out here to the Rockies, you know, and ride the triple bypass course. A lot of athletes will do that, come out here like, uh, maybe like 10 days in advance or something like that. The bottom line is just figure out a way that you can actual climb. And it, it, it doesn't really count on a, on a trainer. Um, you know, the trainers come up with all these like goofy ways to, you know, mimic training. Um, but if that's your only option, I would say get on Zwift and maybe do like the Alpe d'Huez or now, you know, now they got the, the Vaughn too. And, you know, like, you know, just climb there. I mean, it gets you close, but it, it's not like as good as the, the real thing. So, um, yeah, you know, we, we talk, I mean, we've podcasted before about do it yourself training camps and yeah, you know, I, I guess like getting back to what I was saying earlier is maybe travel up to Georgia and do like, get, get to some climbs that you can train on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the trainer over gear stuff works too. So like mm-hmm. the muscle tension intervals mm-hmm. we have, like it's better than nothing for sure. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's not the same sensation wise and mentally and, uh, just speed as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely. I agree. Like another example, sorry to beat this with a dead horse, but like <laughs> as, as a Cal- Colorado athlete going out to California to race the road races out there, what the first thing you notice is the roads are a lot steeper in California. Like every, every climb out here in Colorado is graded, um, for Colorado department of transportation so that the big trucks can go up. So that means like 6%, like we have a ton of climbs at like six or 8%, but in California it's like 15 and 20%. And like when you hit that for the first time and you've never done a 20% climb, that's super punchy you are like, holy cow. So but my advice is like, go find the steepest climb, even at the, the percent grade, like pay attention to that. Love it. Okay. Uh, should we, we, should we talk about, um, so that the, we've covered weight training, we've covered your base training. Oh, you know, one thing that, um, we should also mention, um, cause you talked about nutrition and, uh, on the bike training, training your gut. Your base training is the time to practice your nutrition in the kitchen, the winning in Mm -hmm. the kitchen. And so um, if you want to get really specific, um, when you travel to a race and um, you, you know, you know that you don't have time to go to a restaurant and, you know, you don't want to rely on like a Whole Foods or something and you're packing your Tupperware and you're bringing your, your meals with you and your oatmeal in the morning and then things like that. You know, that's a good thing to practice for your early morning um, base rides, like when you're also practicing getting up at 7 a.m. because that's what time your race is also going to be at. So practice winning in the kitchen, uh, the nutrition um, to serve you towards, well, not only just the, the benefits of winning in the kitchen, but also like come, come race day because, uh, you can do everything right. And then you wake up, you know, two hours before the race and you're like, crap, what do I eat? And, um, if you've been winning in the kitchen, chances are you'll, you'll have that dialed in. So that cover, that covers your weight training, that covers your base training. Let's move on to specific training when you're doing your intervals. 
Yeah. So this is my favorite part. Um, this is when things like start to get pretty, I guess, nitty gritty and fun. Um, at least for on the coaching side. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is when athletes are already doing their intervals. Um, so that, you know, it could be, you know, magnitude of things. Um, but they, uh, yeah, I mean, they're prepping their race intensity through their intervals in this point. Um, and that's kind of like, all right, the crit racers could be doing one minuters um, versus like the roadies that are doing more of like threshold climbing efforts. Uh, just kind of depends on the, the individual. Um, and then second part of specificity comes in again, kind of as we mentioned, but not from your power output, but specificity in how you're training and uh, what you'll be racing on. So from here though, we can add into that without burning a ton of benzyl magic. So it's how to, to explain on that further. That's basically um, how to execute and how to add to your training and make it as dialed as possible without burning a ton of mental matches. So that's always a little bit of a balance, but an example there would be um, if you're a mountain biker or a gravel racer, um, do your intervals, get that done, maybe do them on an uphill um, dial them in, nail them. And then on your way back down. So right after, so even when your heart rate's still elevated, um, turn right back around, go down either that same dirt climb that you just did, or maybe a single track or whatever it might be. And that really like makes you dialing in your handling while you're still red aligned and still breathing through your eyes. So it's a super difficult task in it, but it forces you to breathe and really like focus on what you're doing. And it, it makes a big difference. And that's huge race simulation prep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even for cyclocross, like the skill when your heart rate's 120 is much different than when it's 175. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, Isaiah is speak, taking a, your <clears throat> example. A lot of gravel athletes um, are uh, concerned about the condition of the gravel, especially on the downhill. And so around here in Boulder, it's like, let's do your interval work, the workout portion up like Sunshine Canyon, for example, and then just flip it and come right back down during the recovery portion of the the interval or on a simulation ride. And then also, I, that's why I love to send athletes down Lick Skillet. And that's one of yeah. the steepest roads in, you know, I don't know. What's the percent grade on that bad boy? Man, it's like... I forget. It's a, it's, it, yeah, it's the steepest dirt road in the, in, uh, I believe in the U S I think. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's, county road. It's like 25% plus, but yeah. And it's only for like two kilometers, but if you can successfully negotiate down that on your gravel bike, uh, chances are, uh, whatever you, uh, face in a gravel race, you'll be, uh, well, it won't be as difficult as that or as technical and you'll feel comfortable. So I think sending athletes down like skillet, for example, or down, uh, sunshine Canyon is just a great example of what you just yeah, mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean like the roadies, like for, for you guys to get an example, it might seem silly, but like, um, you can go out and, literally rally a couple intervals and then go into a parking lot of some sort and just like put down four water bottles or something like that and make yourself some tight turns to practice on and then go out and do another set of intervals and come back and do it again. Um, it can, it's definitely the similar fashion. It might not seem as fancy, but it's, it's still definitely useful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, then what do you think about group riding and, and as far like, 
for roadies. Yeah. I mean, group riding is phenomenal because that's the perfect environment to practice everything that you will experience in a race. So use that time and, and, you know, go into, I think people get distracted by like, oh, they're worried about getting dropped or they're, um, you know, worried about looking strong in front of their friends, but like use that time, go in and say, I want to, I want to work on my drafting today. I want to figure out how to dial in my pace line work. I want to learn how to, uh, be better in the crosswinds. I want to figure out how to do an echelon. I want to like do all these different things. Maybe, um, a really good one that I've been talking to an athlete about lately is where, when to pull and when to not pull and when to follow wheels and when not to follow wheels and how to attack. So like how many wheels back do you attack from in order to really have momentum and really take them by surprise. Um, these are all things. It's the perfect time to mess up. It's the perfect time to learn. And it's so much better than doing those experiments in a race of being like, Oh, I'm going to try this now. Like maybe I've already done that eight times in a group ride and it worked or it didn't. Um, and you can figure out what works best for you. And it's yet, yeah, I mean, group rides are just amazing for that. Yeah. You group. That's why in the base season, um, and even in, once we get into intervals, many, many of our training plans, because we hammer the structure like Tuesday, Wednesdays, and maybe sometimes Thursdays, you'll frequently see an unstructured intensity ride on Saturday, which is the group ride. And that, so we're not like necessarily saying do three by three VO two X and Y Watts, but you're going to, uh, ride the race aggressively, for example, make it like an all zone ride. And, um, number one, I think like one of the biggest, uh, skills that new cyclists bring or want to develop is drafting. And Isaiah, I don't know about you, but I remember when I joined the collegiate cycling team as a mountain biker and I never drafted before. And I went out on the first group ride and I was like 10 feet off the back of the group and everyone's <laughs> hollering at me, get on the wheel. And I was scared. I was like, no way in hell am I riding that close to the guy in front of me. And, you know, it, I mean, that's, but it was a skill I needed to develop and it's obviously uh, crucial for you know, gravel, cyclocross and, and road and, and, and all that. But that's like when you work on it and you go and you do the first couple of group rides of the year and you're a little rusty. So, you know, even, even the veterans can, can stand to work on that. Yeah. And it's just like, okay, let's say you are a veteran and you've gotten more advanced with all this and like, do stuff that you've never done before. Like throw a flyer. Like if you're normally a sprinter, throw a flyer, push yourself, like make it harder on yourself. Um, I think people get into a rut of, I just want to win. Like I got to win the sprint, but Mm -hmm. it's like, if you've won 50 of them, is it still fun anymore? I mean, maybe it is, but like make your, (laughs) come on, keep pushing yourself, be a better athlete, like figure it out. And uh, it goes a long way. Yeah. There's so many things you could do on a group ride. I mean, we could do, like a whole podcast yeah, on what yeah. you can work on, on a, on a group ride. And, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, we always talk about going hard and attacking and everything, but like you can do a group ride and practice your energy conservation. And it's like, can you do this group ride and do as little work as possible and still stay with the group? And you can measure that in kilojoules and, like, you know, you take your normal group ride and maybe say you burn like 1500 kilojoules in a, you know, two and a half hours. See if you can burn like, you know, less than 1200 kilojoules by like just drafting super well, riding in the middle of the Peloton, right in that arrowhead, things like that. Um, could go on and on. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
<laughs> yeah. group, group rides have an endless options, but that's like the tactic side of the sport that gets so fun. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to in season, like the specificity of your training beyond just, uh, you know, um, uh, the, the, your intervals, but like, how can we, how can athletes train specifically once they get really close to their A event or once they're in their, in their season? Yeah. So this is like that final prep phase, um, that you're really dialing in and that final build to your, to your race and your a goal um and this is when you can get super geeky and super um nitty-gritty on data um which is a ton of fun on on my end but ideally at this point you've done all the stuff that we've talked about you've built everything out so that all is dialed so that you can really just focus and hone in on the the sharpening end of the sword kind of thing um so on a high level uh, what i do with my elite and pro athletes i go through and do this quite often I go through past data and past demand. So let's say they've hypothetically done the race before, or at this, in this age, you can actually go on and steal someone else's data. Like you go on to Strava <laughs> and say, Oh, well, uh, whoever Pete Stetna did this, did this power data. So, um, and then if you really want to get into it, you can compare and cross examine Watts per kilo and then make a rough estimate. But that's a little bit too far down the rabbit hole than I normally go. But what I usually do is pull past data that an athlete's done at a particular race. And then I recreate that effort in an interval. Um, so like to use an example, I've done this for Joe Martin criterium. And then I've done this for tour of the Hilo road race stages, um, where you can literally basically build the athlete to the exact demand of what they would have experienced in a race and just try and get them as close as possible, um, to what they might experience. And so can you like describe like the example interval or workout from like the Joe Martin criterion? Yeah, <laughs> it's a tough one. I mean, I don't. OK, so if you're doing the pro race, you might be I think it's like two hours because um, it's done by laps. Mm-hmm. It just kind of depends on the year. But basically, the Joe Martin crit has a pretty large little steep kicker in it that the finish is at the top of. Um, so basically what I would r- map out is. I think it was something like you 20 seconds full gas. Um, and then you do like you have 10 seconds of recovery, which is the kind of the chicane section at the top. And then you have, um, 20 seconds at like above threshold, but kind of controlled VO two. And then you have, uh, another turn where you have about 10 seconds of threshold into a coasting and then into the downhill and then sharp turn. And then that's your back to the hill. So it's like, it is end up being kind of micro bursts of a mixture of full gas VO two and, uh, above threshold and then threshold. So it's like, it's a nasty little thing, but it, um, it's also kind of fun cause it keeps, the interval interesting um it's a it's definitely one of those intervals that you want your garmin or wahoo to walk you through the interval because it's hard to keep track right, but right. um but it's it's a fun one because it's more dynamic than just like 30 30s and um it can really dial you in for that exact demand um then of course like races change how that effort might feel like maybe there's a breakaway off the front so now the field's going super slow up the hill and then it's not that demand but um, I'm also not going to have the athlete do 50 laps of that. So, um, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a good way of kind of prepping for it. Um, and then the Gila stage is a fun one cause that's, uh, you know, more of a threshold climb 
separation, uh, long fatigue resistance style training where it's like, okay, over the course of a four to six hour ride. And this is for pro athletes. Um, they need to be able to do basically three by 20 threshold, um, with surges. So it's Mm. a pretty difficult demand. And then of course you build to that. You don't straight out of the gate, have them do that ride, but it's, uh, yeah, that's a fun one too because you can literally see their progression as their body gets resilience, resilient to that fatigue. And then also that's a huge example of if you mess up your fueling, you're done. Like you just won't be able to complete the workout. So that's another cool one is to see athletes really hone in on that and make it make good use of it. Yeah, that, that reminds me, you know, long, long ago learning about the Tour de France athletes here in Boulder would go out and – they would like ride to uh, Carter Lake and back and just basically put up like four hours and 2000 kilojoules. And then they would come back and then do uh, the Flagstaff climb as fast as they possibly could to yeah. mimic the Alpe d'Huez. And so like, if you think about it, that, that was, they were training specifically to the Alpe d'Huez stage and I'm sure they were working on their nutrition. Cause obviously if you don't eat and drink well enough, you're not going to, go up that climb that that fast but that kind of also gets us you know just learn when learning about that it kind of gets us to what we talk about for our simulation rides and when you choose a simulation ride which is a part of many like our gravel plan even our like our fondo plans it, we don't like actually tell athletes the actual simulation to do but we teach them how to basically formulate and craft that simulation ride to the race that they're training for. So like the, the question we get is like, if you're doing a 200 mile gravel races, do I ride 200 miles? And then, or if you're doing like a BWR, that's 140 miles with 12,000 feet of climbing, you, you know, you need to be able to ride like, you know, seven, eight hours. You need to be able to do that ride like on 12,000 feet of climbing, um, you're probably going to burn, you know, close to, you know, over 4,000 kilojoules on the, on the bike. We know that from power data. Um, and then you're probably, you know, put up a TSS of like, you know, greater than 400, uh, maybe 500. So, uh, if you want to be prepared for those races, do that in your simulation rides to basically see what that feels like. And, f- you know, you, you don't even need to do them successfully. Um, they can go really great for five hours and then the last two hours you fall apart and then you ask yourself, why did I fall apart? Was it nutrition? Was it hydration? You know, did my bike give out on me? Did my back start screaming at me? Which we talked about, you know, um, all, all the, all put together all the things. Yeah. It's a, yeah. Don't be discouraged if they do fall apart. Cause at the end of the day, you're trying to replicate a race by yourself. Mm-hmm. So that's a big mental task. And even if you've prepared really, really well, maybe you like, I don't know, missed, uh, one bar or something like that. And that caused you to have a rough last hour. Um, just use that as a lesson and dial it in for the race. Cause then at the end of the day, like you're going to be in a race environment, you're going to be, uh, just encouraged by people around you. You might be able to draft a little bit, so it will be a little bit better, but um, yeah, I mean, this is, these are like tough things, so be pumped, but also learn from them. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're basically, you're flushing out what could go wrong. Right. Um, and it's better to do that in the training than, than on the race day. Yeah, so totally. That's kind of, that's kind of what you're doing. And on the other hand, um, you know, say your simulation ride goes really well. Well, guess what? 
that's confidence building. Take that to the start line and then use that to maybe race at a higher pace or more aggressively or in a way that just gives you, you know, more, more confidence and less doubt during the event. Yeah. All right. Um, and then I have two final little points here that I think often get overlooked on the just specificity and then also just prep, um, recovery. So yeah, this often gets overlooked, but yes, there is specific work that can be done just within recovery. Um, and that could be like Frank, you kind of mentioned before we started recording that, that like, it's important that maybe you take two days off. So you're kind of getting used to that, um, and how your body will respond to that and, and being okay with that. Um, and then also the concept of, all right, are you going to try and get a massage before your race or are you going to be getting massages during your race? Um, you should definitely prepare your body for that demand because, you know, there are some adverse effects that might take place from having a deep tissue massage. Like you might, um, oftentimes you feel really sore, so you need to figure out how your body responds. Maybe you need three days before a race, maybe you need two. Um, you might get even flu like symptoms if you get really deep massages. So be careful with that. Um, and then the also, even foam rollers. Um, sometimes I've seen athletes that will go to a race and they will only use their foam roller at a race because that's they, what they think will help recover. Well, yes, but also, you know, when you first get on a foam roller, it's really going to hurt. Like that's going to be something you're not used to. So implement that into your routine, uh, before your race, well before your race and get your body used to it. And then that's something that will actually then benefit your body really well. And then, you know, there's like all the good stuff that's a little bit easier. Um, like, setting up your routine so that you like, if you're going to use Norma tech boots, like giving yourself time to be able to do that and just dialing everything in so that when you get to your race, you are so dialed with your routine. You don't even have to think about it and you're just stress-free the whole time. Amen to that. Yeah. Yeah. Develop your recovery routine. And, uh, you know, in the, in the vein of this podcast topic, should you train specifically your round? The answer is yes. And so, you know, don't work on your recovery just in the week before the race, work on your recovery year round. Yeah. And it feels nice too. It's nice to feel recovered. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and then the last one is mental training. So this is a tough one. And this is one that I think mo actually most athletes overlook. Um, but spend time like practicing your mental prep for your race. So that you're, when you're at your race and you're needing to kind of calm those jitters down or those butterflies, or you're needing maybe the night before to fall asleep, you've gone through some sort of mental routine where maybe you're envisioning the race, you're envisioning the morning of and how you're, everything's kind of dialed and ready to go and you're calm and you're relaxed and that, um, and that you can apply that to your intervals and you can apply that to those key training sessions or those simulation rides. And that will make such a big difference. Um, and I've had an athlete the other day that did a cross race that, um, he mentioned in his comments, like I was nervous. I don't normally get nervous. Well, what's happening. I, I then kind of messed with my start and I was like, well, first of all, nervous is good, but then how do you mm -hmm. handle that in that moment? That's like something you really want to be prepared of or for. Yeah. Amen. Um, this is why I like to recommend yoga to, to athletes is because yoga is a form of moving meditation, you know, just breathe. You know, if you can get really good at your breathing and your meditation, you can go to the start line, you can take a deep breath and, you know, collect yourself and calm yourself down. Same thing when you're on a descent, you know, you can, 
Um, you know, Coach Nadia has uh, w- w- told me over the years, she says, flap your arms like a chicken. So if you take your elbows and, you know, you're, imagine you're holding your hoods, and if you can relax your shoulders and, and let the death grip go and, and just kind of relax and flap your arms like a chicken, it, it helps, uh, you know, just to kind of, uh, re- relax on that descent or, you know, being nervous. Uh, yeah, but Isaiah's spot on is it, you know, do your yoga in the off season, do your, do your, Jackson and I podcasted about meditation. This is right along the lines of what we're, we're talking about. Don't just meditate the week before a race, a good meditation practice is something that, you know, is like years in, in the works. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, I guess that that's most of my points. I have, I guess one more comes to mind mm-hmm. that might get overlooked too. Um, prep also, and, and maybe replicate. Like I remember, um, I don't know if she'll be a fan of me saying this, but at one point I had to teach my wife how to do a bottle hand up. So how to do <laughs> to operate in the feed zone. And mm-hmm. it's, it's intimidating. Like you have oh, yeah. a field of maybe a hundred plus riders coming through going 30 miles an hour and she needs to find me and hold out my bottle for me. And I think, uh, that particular year she was really excited cause, um, and I was really proud of her cause the, a couple riders tried to steal my, my bottles and she like mm. snatched them back and, and almost crashed out a rider that tried to steal it. And it was great. But, um, so much drama. I know like these ones are carnage. So it, it was, <laughs> I was, it's awesome. But that, that's an example of like, mm-hmm. figure out how you're going to get your few food. Um, and don't just throw your loved ones into the thick of it on race day and say like, yeah, just be in this spot in the middle of nowhere in Kansas and mm-hmm. get me my food. Like mm-hmm. that's not going to work. So yeah, that's <laughs> another one that you might want to do some simulation rides on. <laughs> totally. I, you know, I, along those same lines, you know, having spent time, um, in the feed zones at Leadville, you can tell the support crew that are veterans and the ones that aren't, I mean, the veteran support crew, you know, they have it, they have it down. They've communicated with their rider. The rider knows exactly where they're going to be. And then it's already pre-planned what they're going to, uh, get handed up to, or for instance. And so, yeah, you know, that, that's a, that's a great example. Um, I love that one. Right. That was a lot. That was a lot. <laughs> well, <through> a lot. <laughs> we, we covered a lot as, as always. Um, um, if you have any questions about, uh, what we talked about, um, maybe we weren't clear about, uh, about something, or if you just want to, you know, even dive down even further, the best place to do that is, uh, head over to forum.fastcatcoaching.com. Um, Isaiah and I will be able to answer your question, uh, about this and, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, I think it's just a good mindset to get into year round. I mean, we spend so much time uh, concentrating on trying to ride our bikes as much. It's just these are just uh, you know just more examples of how you can make it better. Mm-hmm. Think full picture. Yep, big picture. Yep. Yes. All right. Well, uh, thanks for being on the podcast today, Isaiah. Yeah. Thanks, Frank. It was fun. Yeah. Yeah. You bet. Um, uh, I'm trying to think. I might go for a bike ride now. Oh, gosh. This afternoon, we have our Zwift meetup with yeah. Coach Jake. Join us. No one that's listening to this podcast will. Our, yeah, our it'll podcast be too late. will be public <laughs> by then. But uh, anyway, whatever. We, we, it's something next we're going to do uh, on the second Thursday for the next four months. So look for that in um, our, our socials. So Coach Jake's going to lead a, a meetup per uh, 
yeah, it's just a no drop rod, just fun way. So Isaiah, I will see you over there and, uh, just under four hours, five hours. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thanks everyone for, for listening and, uh, remember to keep working hard, ride fast and have fun. And as always, FTFP. Thanks guys. Peace.